Hello and welcome to History for Normal People. My name is Caleb Land. Today we're going to be continuing our series on church history. This is season one, which covers like the first 600 years of church history. And so we're trying to answer this question. How did a group of 12 followers of a man in Palestine, really a backwater of the Roman Empire, go from being a persecuted small group of uh, people to becoming the most powerful and influential organization, institution in the Western world that we're still seeing a massive influence from today. And so that's really the question that we're trying to answer. And today we're going to be looking at a man named Tertullian. Last time, we talked about the Alexandrian school. We looked at Clement and Origen, their influence on the early church. And they particularly had a strong and still have a strong influence on the Eastern Orthodox and the Coptic church. Today, our attention is going to shift to the west of the coast of northern Africa to the city of Carthage. The heart of Latin Christianity was not, at least for the first several hundred years of the Christian church, Rome. The heart of the Latin church, which produced the majority of Christian literature and influences Christians both Protestant and Catholic to this day, really came from Africa. Northern Africa was an outpost and political and literal crossroads of sorts in the ancient world. Much of the more established Roman Empire was very hostile to Christianity while North Africa proved more fertile to the growth and development of Christianity. Like we said, the Alexandrian school became a bedrock for the Eastern Orthodox and Coptic churches, while the Christian communities in Carthage and Hippo in West Africa produced the leaders and teachings that would become the foundation of the Catholic and the Protestant churches. Tertullian is one of the first and an extremely important uh, Christian leader in this West African era. Tertullian was born in Carthage, which is the modern city of Tunis in Tunisia on the Mediterranean coast in about 160 AD. Carthage was a major trading post in the Roman world, and it provided really the riches of Africa to Rome. Rome was only about 370 miles directly uh, across the Tyrrhenian Sea. Tertullian was converted to Christianity when he was a kid, and at some point he traveled to Rome to study Latin, which is why when he returned to Carthage, he is the earliest Latin Christian writer, and these early Latin Christian documents that Tertullian produced were uh, from the northern coast of Africa, not from Rome itself. Perhaps the most important writing that Tertullian produced was a scathing attack on paganism and a defense of Christianity known as the Apology. Tertullian was most likely trained as a lawyer, and the Apology really reflects this. He seeks to build a case in defense of Christians and attacks Pliny and others about the Roman persecution of Christians, and he condemns them as unjust and illegal. And he really builds an incredible case for this. 
Tertullian was a moving and powerful writer, and his work to the martyrs is inspiring and encouraging to those facing persecution. Tertullian is perhaps most defined by his moral seriousness and ethical rigor. Ultimately, he's going to leave the Church of North Africa because he didn't think that the people who committed major sins such as adultery or apostasy, which was a major problem during the persecutions, should be forgiven and brought back into the church. And this was a major controversy at the time. And ostensibly, he paved the way for the teachings on excommunication in his writings. He thought that those people should be removed from the church permanently. Tertullian was constantly engaged in theological controversies with Marcion, the Gnostics, Docetism, and Orthodox Christians as well. For Tertullian, everything is incredibly black and white, and he was right about everything in his mind. There's no wiggle room, no compromise. If you care anything about Enneagram numbers, it's almost certain that Tertullian would have been classified as an Enneagram 1. He's often been accused as being anti-intellectual, but this isn't really fair. He attacked pagan philosophers, but like most people, he's a part of his own culture, and so he was heavily influenced by the very pagan philosophers that he overtly rejected. And he never abandoned the logical, legal way of thinking or rhetorical flourishes that probably made him an incredibly successful lawyer. If anything, he was a bit of an absurdist. He wrote, The Son of God died. It is by all means to be believed because it is absurd. He was buried. He rose again. The fact is certain because it is impossible. If nothing else, some of Tertullian's statements like this are early works of presuppositional apologetics. Tertullian would poke holes in the false worldviews. He would argue against pagan meta-narratives, and defend the Christian meta-narrative. But Tertullian has some major flaws, and he's easily contrasted with some Christians we studied earlier, someone like Clement, for example. And in comparing them, we begin to see the cracks forming in Eastern and Western forms of Christianity. In Clement, we saw a man who was very excited about Christianity, a man who loved to explore theology as an, really as an intellectual exercise. He didn't take himself that seriously, even much of his work that seriously. He believed in a few things deeply, but he wasn't really close-fisted about a whole lot of things. He was happy to explore. He was happy to question but in Tertullian, we see the exact opposite. Clement wrote as if the souls of his readers uh, was dependent on a few essential things, whereas Tertullian wrote as if the souls of his readers literally hung on the balance of every single word that he wrote. One example would be the contrast of these two Christian teachers when it comes to the issue of service in the military. So, this was a, a major issue at the time. Many soldiers were becoming Christians. Uh, just like it is today in America, becoming a soldier can be a way for somebody who comes from a poor family to advance themselves, 
to raise their station in life, to even buy their freedom out of slavery. And so it was a, a very popular occupation, and Rome had a large standing army. But the army was also the arm of persecution at times for Christians. They were asked to do things that Christians would be considered immoral. And Christian teachers in the second century were, for obvious reasons, very sensitive to the power of the civil government to wield the sword. Clement, however, while adamant that unjust violence and power should be avoided, appears to have had no problem with Christian soldiers continuing to serve in the military as long as they followed Christian ethics and the, fa- the commands that they followed were not contrary to the Christian uh, scriptures. He's not clear, however, on how a Christian soldier was to go about doing this. So once again, with Clement, he comments a little bit on this. He is kind of vague at times about it. It's not something that really concerns him that much. He kind of leaves it up to individual conscience. But Tertullian was not a man who wanted to leave things up to the individual consciences of Christians. He wrote prolifically on any number of topics, and he was adamantly opposed to Christians serving in any type of military. He believed that for no reason could Christians participate in violence of any kind. And he taught that when Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, he was telling every Christian from that point forward and forever to put away their sword. Going even further, he taught that any service to Rome, even wearing a Roman uniform or serving in Roman civil service, was tantamount to committing acts of violence and the same as participating in and promoting idolatry. Because the Roman Empire promoted worship of pagan gods, no service to uh, Rome could be allowed for a Christian. For Tertullian, the Christian could have nothing to do with the Roman Empire and couldn't even appear to condone or participate in any Roman activity. For Tertullian, there really were a voice in the wilderness holding the Roman government accountable for their paganism, their excess, their sins, and he didn't believe that there could be any compromise at all when working for or serving the Roman government. Remember, this is a time where the Roman government was you know, often persecuting Christians often killing people that you know these Christian leaders were very close to. And so it would be easy to, to, to come to the conclusions that Tertullian had. And, and really with Clement and Alexandria, they were in a, a part of the, the Roman Empire that didn't face as severe persecution as some other parts. So that definitely plays into it. But it is kind of interesting how adamant Tertullian was. On baptism, Tertullian was very in line with the church at the time. He believed and declared succinctly that baptism could not be separated from its four gifts, which the church at the time in common practice taught was for the remission of sins, for deliverance from death, for regeneration, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. This may seem strange to Protestants, but was common to the teaching of the early church and was definitely influential in the development of the Catholic understanding of baptism as well. Tertullian also introduced the idea of making satisfaction for sins. This was a concept borrowed from Roman law. Once again, Tertullian being a a lawyer definitely influenced his theology in this way. 
And Tertullian's thought, Christ made it possible for Christians to make satisfaction for sins through penance. When they sinned, they were making satisfaction to demons. When they repented from sins, they were making satisfaction to God. It was something along the lines of paying a debt in Roman legal language. The idea that Christians can pay their sins through penance is going to have a massive effect on the Western church, especially the Catholic church, for years to come. Tertullian was late in his life converted to Montanism, which is a doctrine which he tried to advocate for at the time from within the church. The teaching has been compared to modern-day charismatic or Pentecostal movements in that prophets, the first of these being Montanus himself, received ecstatic visions and prophecies from the Holy Spirit that were direct revelation from God, they believed. It was an incredibly morally rigorous group, and it was very critical of the overall Christian church at the time, which is likely why it appealed so much to Tertullian. But it also shows how legalism itself can be a road to heresy. Often we think of more progressive Christians as you know, compromising the ethics or the teachings of the church. But for Tertullian, it was an incredibly conservative brand of Christianity and accusing the, the church as a whole of being too liberal or loose or extending too much grace to apostate Christians, which led him to adopt a heretical teaching and led him away from the church. And so it's an important warning that you can really fall to two different sides. Your moral rigor can lead you away from gospel truth as well. So, what can we, as modern Christians, as normal people, as people interested in history or history of Christianity, what can we learn from someone that seems so far removed from us, a Roman lawyer in Latin North Africa 1,800 years ago? Well, of course, I believe that we can learn a lot, and hopefully you'll dig into some of the readings of Tertullian that are available online that we'll link to from our website, normalhistory.com and find out for yourself. But let me give you a couple of closing thoughts that hopefully will give you some, uh, some things to ponder. So first of all, as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, I think we can learn a lot about the dangers of legalism. In Tertullian, we begin to see this pharisaical attitude creeping into the Christian church. Tertullian was not quick to forgive. He was quick to condemn. And we see the exact opposite attitude in Jesus. This doesn't mean that repentance and sanctification and a life that produces good fruit are unimportant. This doesn't mean that the very real problems of sexual immorality and even apostasy and abandoning the church in its time of great need and times of persecution weren't a very, very important issues that needed to be addressed in Tertullian's time and quite possibly even in our time today. But what it does mean is that we should be slow to judge quick to extend mercy, because we have been extended mercy. 
one of the big differences that we're going to see between Tertullian and another West North African uh, leader, Augustine, is the very real experience of the grace and mercy of God. And I believe the reason that Augustine's legacy endures so much stronger within the Protestant church is because of that very real encounter with the gospel and with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I believe that influenced his teaching. Second, I think we can see the beauty and the danger of a person with an occupation in a culture practicing theology. What do I mean by this? Well, we all have preconceived notions, preconceptions, cultural influences, presuppositions that we are both aware of and unaware of. This is one of the most important reasons that we need to study church history, to understand the perspective of saints from all ages. And it's also one of the major reasons why we need the church. We need the perspective and accountability of other people around us who can see our own preconceptions, our own flaws, our own prejudices, and can point those things out to us. Tertullian was a gifted lawyer, and I, for one, have been blessed by his clear defense of Christianity and his passion for the truth. It's challenging and inspiring to see the way that he defends the faith, and it's convicting to see the moral seriousness with which he took his faith. One of the lessons that we can really learn is that we should use the talents and the abilities that God has given us in his service. But we should also be accountable to the church, to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and to the word of God to make sure that our own struggles, our own priorities, our own quest for moral superiority is not coming to dominate the gospel. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is shining through clearly and is abundantly evident in everything that we're doing. Thank you so much for paying uh, attention to us this week. And I hope that it's been uh, interesting to you. And hopefully you've learned something as a normal person that you can apply to your regular life. If you are interested in more about Tertullian, I encourage you to check out our website, normalhistory.com. Possibly even sign up for that course there. Do some of the readings and join in in some of the discussions as well.